Welcome back to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z. This special bonus episode four is a next step dive into conversations around the small soul and ego. My guest today is Rory Hyam, an IFS practitioner. I trust you'll enjoy him as much as I do. Hit me up with your thoughts and questions. Always glad to hear from you. In the meantime, Rory Hyam, deepening into the small soul. Enjoy the show. Here we go. Rory Hyam, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I'm really glad to have you on the show with me here today. Pleasure to be here. The reason I invited you on the show today is we're related. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Culturally. <laughs> Culturally, yeah. yeah. So, yeah. By marriage, too. You and Alice, uh, the guest on the last show, are brother and sister. Uh-huh, yeah. And uh, I actually met you before I met Alice. You did. I remember. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, what do you remember about that? Well, I remember, um, like, what, what was I, like, five or six or seven or something? I remember... It was um, 1995. Well, okay, so I was I was nine, yeah. So I was. Uh, you came to stay at my dad's house near Glastonbury in England because you were a, a, a how do you say it? a stilter, a stiltsman, still walker. Like you were performing. You were performing um, at Glastonbury Festival, and you all came and stayed. And um, I just remember you guys were coming to stay, um, and I remember you because you have this kind of inherent kind of playfulness and kind of inclusivity and you're you know I've seen you with kids lots of times since then and obviously I was a kid at the time and you were yeah you really kind of connected and and uh yeah I remember your kind of vibrance and playfulness mostly and I also remember after you guys left talking to Alice on the phone and saying oh I really liked all your friends especially Jeffrey and, and she was like, oh, I don't know him. <laughs> she hadn't met you at the time. I particularly remember that. I don't know why, but I remember. That's yeah, amazing. She was, like, she was like, no, I haven't met him. And now you've been married for how long? We've been together 24 years and we've been married since 2003. So we're coming on 19 years. Yeah. 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 And then our paths crossed again, you know, over the years. And uh, one of the other things when I think about I've talked about that I'm an acupuncturist in Chinese Uh medicine, but it's a path you found. And then you also found yourself in working with internal family systems. You can describe more for yourself about what your journey has been as you came of age and as you found your way into your adulthood and the choices you've made. But I wanted to have you on this show in particular because I wanted to follow up with the conversation I had with your sister. Partly, you know, you both have uh, IFS, internal family systems, and then you and I have this Chinese medicine connection and also your own personal travels and your, your spiritual seeking and, and, and the things that you found. So we started talking about the show I did with your sister and you had some of your own uh, response to the conversation we had. And I thought, you know, you're right. The show should have gone longer in a way. And when I, when we talked about the ego and what I called the small soul, and we were looking at compassion for the ego and its presence and its relationship in, in the evolutionary story, and I said, you know, I was wanted to include the listeners in this conversation. The truth is, Alice and I have had that conversation, but we never had it as open as we did when we did the ritual of the podcast. So it, it became, it was like a starter. It was like an opening doorway. Like, okay, we've been talking about this, but 
we never had really concentrated our thoughts. And, and I think there's a lot of room to continue the conversation. So when you and I started talking after the show, I'm like, ah, yeah, here's an opportunity to continue the conversation. So welcome to the show. I'm really glad you're here. But uh, more importantly, I really want to dive into this idea of ego. And maybe we can just start with some of the responses you started having out of the show and what came to mind and build off that. Yeah, sure. Okay, so, um, well, firstly, I thought it was a great show that you and Alice did. And uh, it really, it really got me thinking as well. I thought it was a very elegant conversation that you guys had. You kind of dovetailed into each other, to each other's ideas and uh, coming back around on each other very well. And I thought that was beautiful. And yeah, it's interesting that I have, um, in a way, I'm a kind of halfway house between you guys because I have the background in Chinese medicine, but also I've trained in IFS a lot. And yeah, so a couple of things that stood out for me from that was this sense of the relationship with the ego and I thought you guys did a great uh, job about talking about the relationship with the ego and different ways of of approaching it and your idea of the defense of the ego and Alice's idea of compassion for the different parts and how to relate to them what made it made me think of was well who is it that's relating to this ego you know where are we coming from I think it that you know, that, that speaks to your idea of um, upright primates. But then what is the alternative to an upright primate? What, what's the other assumption? And I think Ali was touching on that when, when she was talking about her spiritual community. Uh, a lot of the, these kind of conversations, there's a, there's a case of uh, mistaken identity going on. You know, it's the classic thing in, um, in Advaita, in self-inquiry who am i you know the question who am i um for example in the yoga sutras they talk about the opening line of the yoga sutras is um yoga chitta vritti niroda um which is sanskrit for roughly something like yoga is the cessation of the fluctuation of the mind so the calming of that that narrating voice that Alice was talking about, that chatter in the mind. And then when that calms down, the, the seer abides in his true nature. Yeah, so when the mind... When so, the, deep. The, the, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> this, so deep. That's so deep. With the cessation yeah. of the fluctuation of the mind, i.e. the ego, the, the seer abides in its own nature, i.e. the soul, maybe, or whatever you want to call it, the Atman or um, mm. Buddha nature. So it's this case of identity, right? And, and, and the, it's often mistaken identity. You, identi- you identify with your ego, right? And I think there's a great Adyashanti quote, which is the only thing that's trying to get rid of your ego is your ego. Yeah. yeah. The super ego is what I, the way I frame that. I'm a spiritual being, so now I'm going to get rid of this small exactly, part of me. Yeah. So from an IFS perspective, that would be what we call a self-like part. Yeah, so that would be a self-like part. So that's a part that's kind of got lots of qualities of the true self or the greater self that's kind of masquerading as that within the system. Or we call it spiritual ego or a self-like part. Yeah. Uh huh. Interesting. There's a few ideas uh, cooking here already, and I, I think we need to find uncork one or two of them and really focus in for a little bit. And the one that um, I think I'll go towards first is you 
talking about the cessation of the ego, mm-hmm. right? And that the and and that there is a, a true self or soul there, a true seer from the the Yoga Sutra, yeah, mm-hmm. the opening lines. Mm-hmm. And then in our conversation we had leading up to this one, you talked about celebrating the ego. Mm-hmm. So how do you reconcile those two ideas in relationship to the mm-hmm. ego, like? you know, cessating it, like, just like, Hey, just let this ego need go. Um, or however you would describe it. And then on the other hand, just like celebrating this, the sense of that I do have a sense of self and, mm-hmm. and it has a role here or it seems to have a role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, well, I'd say that they're quite different ideas. Um, to start with the, uh, the yoga tradition, the yoga sutras is a kind of ascetic tradition, right? So their whole thing is, um, cessating the ego, you know, stopping the ego, ceasing the ego. And uh, it, and that's why, to, to that end, they ended up living in caves and not eating anything and, you know, becoming, <laughs> <laughs> becoming sort of fully divorcing themselves from society on that quest of, of, of kind of, of getting rid of the ego. Um, whereas the idea of cel- celebrating the ego comes much more from internal family systems and, and uh, like Ali was saying, the parts work. And if you can conceptualize the ego as the parts or understand or come into relationship with the ego as the parts, then it links into what you were talking about in terms of like their evolutionary uh, necessity and the fact that they're there and that they should be celebrated and that you wouldn't want to not have them, you know, because do you want to live in a cave? You know, how far do you want to go to, to, to not have this ego? But again, I think it brings me back to this case of mistaken identity. So firstly, I just wanted to talk about within that internal family systems model, there is the idea of the parts, but there's also the idea of the self, the true nature, as they say in the Yoga Sutras. And I think that's a really, really key um, idea in internal family systems is the idea of the self and the relationship between that and the parts. Okay. And so in your understanding, you think the parts are the ego? Yeah, roughly. I think roughly, I think, again, that was a quite a sort of what are we, what are we talking about with ego? Um, yeah, I don't know what my answer is on that, honestly. I don't know. I, I can imagine that the ego is not a singular thing or, you know, that the, the process of evolution has generated layers of co- qualities that, you know, sometimes are in harmony with each other and sometimes have different motivations if I go back to my interview, I think it was episode 18 with David Buss, you know, like one of the points or one of the motivations we have biologically is to sort out our mating life. Mm-hmm. You know, are we partnering and and we have a certain, and some of this is uh, sex or gender based motivations in relationship to that of how that works based in the deep biology of our body and how we ori- generally orient, not for everybody, mm-hmm. you know, universally, but there's these, these trends and patterns. And so, you know, that's just one mission. <laughs> and then we have other missions of, that we need to do. So we have these kind of multiple expressions of, of hu- our hu- humanity, you know, whether that's fathering or partnering or, or work life or, or community service or deep study. So I, I can see the ego itself having multiple parts based in evolution, multiple motivations, multiple voices, or, you know, a community or a cooperative of things. And th- there is a unifying self, but I also like uh, this idea that this uh, how do I want to say it? I'm, I'm just trying. I think it's going to probably oh, yeah. be not right, but I'll just try it. That the ego and the self, like separating that also seems problematic to me. Yeah, yeah, me too. So I would say 
from a from a yogic point of view, the, the quote that I just gave is says, you know, you've stopped the cessation of the mind and then you abide in your true nature. So they're coming down firmly on the on the side of you are not your ego, right? Um, you are not your thoughts, you are not your motivations. And all those things that you um, spoke about before, about mating and community and all, all those all those ideas uh, that we evolve with, that's what the yogi is leaving behind. He's leaving behind all of those things. And so in a sense, you could say that they are intertwined with the ego. But you know whether you're coming from that kind of Eastern perspective of you are not your ego that leads to all this spiritual bypassing that Alice is talking about, um, from the from the internal family systems point of view, part of the reason that I think it's great is that it it honors both of those, right? So it's this idea, this from the Eastern wisdom traditions, this idea of a of a a self, a true self, yeah, that you find in in lots of the traditions, but also the idea of the parts that are holding your cultural beliefs and maybe your ancestral motivations and your own experiences, and it's the you are not one and you're not the other, you are, you're the combination of all of them. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it's that relationship between your, between your, you know, higher self or your transcendent self or the divine in all of us with the ego, with the risen primate, with the, with the parts, essentially, that that's where the healing happens is in the relationship. Beautiful. And otherwise you're, you end up kind of, what they call it, running away from your own tail. Yeah, so you're running away from your own tail, T-A-I-L, but also T-A-L-E. Yeah, you're running away from your own stuff. When you spent time in India, did you interact with any ascetic yogis and spend time with them? Yeah, 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 I did. I did. Um, <laughs> in different places, yeah. I mean, it's a tough one, India, because there's a lot of there's a lot of charlatans out there as well, you know, there's a lot of kind of Indian guys that put on robes and pretend to be something that they're not. But, you know, then again, maybe there's this whole story about maybe they have reached higher states of consciousness, but they still haven't turned back and helped their ego. So they still have all these kind of strange motivations. And that's that's the story with a lot of gurus as well. You have these people that are reaching these amazing states, but then often they have feet of clay, whether it's to do with sex or money or power or you know control whatever it is right yeah so again it's the relationship between those two things if you're can you even transcend your ego where are you going if you do and does that actually help you in the in the kind of real dualistic world deal with your relationships and your community and your day-to-day -day life hazards and charlatans aside did you encounter ascetic yogis in india that you felt knew how to cessate the, the chatter of the mind and, you know, in a renunciate way, in a way that like spoke to you or taught you something about the nature of how you could have a relationship with that part or that, that sense of self. Hmm. In a way that spoke to me about as if something that I could take into my own life. Yeah. Inspired um, you like, Oh, okay. I see this person here, man, woman yeah. sitting in, in meditation or doing practice or being in their embodied yeah. reality in a way with their ego that was ascetic, that was like, no, I'm not buying into the dance of life. You know, to me, yeah. and we talked, I think a little bit about this on the phone, that like the West African drumming and singing tradition uh -huh. is not an ascetic tradition. Uh -huh. You know, it is a celebration of exactly. 
the smile, the dance, the movement, right? It's just so incredible. The praise singing, like they're praising people. They're like, they're singing about this person. They're telling the tale and, and, the, and yeah. the griots know it and they're, and they're celebrating that. Exactly. And it's just a beautiful energy and yeah. it's not yoga. It's not, yo it's not the renunciate tradition. So yeah. I, that to me is a really nice. Yeah. yeah. They're, fu they're fully in the life and the ego and the flavor and the spice and the kind of, yeah, of, of the, the, yeah, the juiciness that that brings about life. And, um, and that's what I was talking about in terms of the celebration of the ego is because actually my experience being in India was that, no, it didn't inspire me. It didn't, it didn't make me feel that that was the life that I wanted to live. You know, I, I, there's another whole piece here, which is a cultural piece, right? Because in India, there's something like 20 million sadhus living on the streets. And, and you, you know, sometimes you'll go to certain places like Rishikesh I've been to and also uh, Tiruvannamalai and, um, and it's full of sadhus, you know, and some of these guys, you can feel their power. I mean, you can really feel it. Some of them, you know, maybe they're on that kind of charlatan spectrum, they're a bit further towards the other end. But I mean, there's a whole piece about how that is an accepted part of of life in India and the culture in a way that it isn't in the West, but some of them you can really feel their power, you know, and that you can really see that they are one with the moment and, you know, they, they, their kind of earthly needs have been discarded. But it didn't make me want to discard my earthly needs. I'm quite, <laughs> I was quite, I'm quite fond of my earthly needs and I'd much rather, like you say, in the, uh, the West African tradition kind of revel in them. And so I, I met a few people in India like that. So some sadhus on the street that you could see their power. Um, but the person that really stood out to me was uh, the Dalai Lama because and I spent time with him up in Dharamsala. He has that power. You know, he has that power. You can feel it when he comes into the room more than these sadhus or, you know, whatever, different. But he certainly has that power and he's obviously a Vajrayana master. But he's also having to deal with all the daily life stuff. You know, he, he also has to have a high functioning ego and he has to be able to reconcile that within its own, his own existence because he's having to run the Tibetan diaspora and all these monasteries and all of these problems that he's had to deal with in his incredible life. Um, but he manages to have that that relationship in a very powerful way yeah so that's that that was the most inspiring for me it's great love talking about the dalai lama it's mm. amazing i actually when i was recording with alice i kept thinking about the dalai lama yeah compassion for self and i'm also thinking about the tibetan tradition where there is the the logic side of it mm -hmm. you know there's debating and logic and exactly. so there's that that kind of deep discussion and engagement with the problems of suffering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is exactly. And, they're, and, they're, and they're, they've got a rigorous kind of intellectuality. Um, and they have yes. all, these, all these debates happening all over where they do the, the, the slapping thing. And, um, and they revel in that. Yeah, they really re they revel in that. What's the slapping thing? Oh, so they stand around in the courtyards of the monasteries and, and somebody stands up and they, you know, they're talking very passionately in Tibetan. And then when they get to the end of their point, they kind of slap their hand and point it towards the other person who then has to reply and then does the same uh -huh. thing. So it's uh, kind of like jeering in the parliament. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Except more friendly. <laughs> Less yeah, polarized. more friendly. Yeah. Totally. Exactly. Totally. More yeah, Tibetan. Yeah. And, um, but it's, but they're really, they're working out their minds. You know, they have these incredible minds and they are engaged with the world. They're fully engaged with the world in this kind of compassionate way. And they want 
they want the best for the world, whether it's the environment or their community or humanity. That's the bit Dalai Lama's yeah. big trip about seven yeah. billion people. But then you contrast that with the. But at the same time, they don't identify with their ego. They don't identify with their thoughts, but they know that it's it's kind of part of them in the same way that their legs are. You know, you wouldn't they wouldn't want to chop that off. And if you contrast that with the more kind of ascetic yogi tradition, so for example, Ramana Maharshi sitting in his cave in Tiruvannamalai being eaten by rats, and he's so kind of disidentified with his body and with his, his you know, this is not yeah. me, this is not myself, that uh, he doesn't care. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a heavy image. As we began to go down this little road we're traveling right now, I began to think about like checking out basically, you know, when we're being a renunciate, checking out on some of the opportunities. It's not the greatest word. I've looked for other words that kind of match opportunities. It's, but yeah, that looks for the opportunities of engagement with life. Right. And yeah. so, you know, the, the contrast of, you know, his holiness and the, and the, and the idea that he is engaged with the problems of the world, but from a deep wisdom tradition is different than like, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to go over here <laughs> and I'm going to, you know, do this thing. And so I want to actually explore more of the Western side of it. Cause I think mm-hmm. as Westerners from European, European descent culture, American culture, and all, all that America is right now, that when there's those, those journeys into India or Peru and there is traditions there and, and the kind of double-sidedness of ego development that comes along with that or lack of ego development. I think that's the thing that I care about when, when I think about genuine spirituality. It's like, okay, genuine spirituality is not a, a destruction of the ego in my point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, an engagement and development of, okay, I, I, I was evolved to have a self or a sense of self. I can, I can let it fully run or some part of it half consciously, unflexibly run my life, or I can understand, um, my nature and I can work at it from a few different levels. I can work at it at a deep biological, psychological level. I can look at it from wisdom traditions, but you know, you have people going to Peru as we were talking in the pre-show, you know, doing ayahuasca ceremonies three times a week and, and chewing on you know, cocoa leaves and, and really just, I don't know that that isn't a cop out in some ways of a certain engagement with an experience of the self and integrating the self or healing the self. And so I think you've seen this because in our conversations, I've gotten that, that hint from you and I want to give you an opportunity to, to riff on that. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that. I've seen that all over the place and I see that every day right now (laughs) because I'm in Peru and yeah, I mean, it's, it is a, it's a form of spiritual bypassing. Um, And there's a lot of that that happens in India um, with, with, uh, the kind of uh, seeker community, the Western people that come to India, and always have, you know, and th- and that's a great that's a great tradition because you have that whole thing from the sixties and people coming to India and bringing back the kind of Eastern wisdom and Ramdas and all these kind of people, and um, but there are also a lot of people that go and check out, you know. <laughs> they go and they check out and there's something about that um, place that has a certain power that will catch you 
and they will tell you, you know, you don't need your ego and you don't need to kind of uh, come to terms with or engage with your own cultural patterns, your own ancestral patterns, your own childhood, your own stuff. You can just mm-hmm. um, kind of sit in bliss and that's all right because it also has all these role models within that culture like the great saints that did that, that renounced and they sat in bliss and that that's okay. Um, and, and I think in... in the plant medicine community, there's a lot of that that happens as well, that people come here and they 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 check out and the the plant gives them this, in a, in a way it kind of inflates their ego because it gives them this sense of themselves as this sort of super spiritual being. And it's interesting to compare the two because it's a very passive spirituality, whereas in the East there's a lot of practice, you know, training the wild horses of the mind sitting in the cave, you know, whether you're a bhakti and you're, you're singing all the time, you're doing kirtan, or whether you're an ascetic and you're sitting there, or whether you're a, um, a, a non-dualist and you're kind of blending the atman, whatever you're doing, you're doing something. Whereas in South America, all you do is drink this stuff and then sit there and it all kind of happens for you. Yeah. But there's another so... piece, that, sorry, there's another piece about that, which I thought was quite interesting, which was about... Coming to another culture, whether it's India or, you know, Nepal or... Yeah, so there's a thing about going to another culture and then coming back to your own culture that really will reflect to you your own patterns, your own cultural uh, things that you've picked up in your in your ego, if, if that's what we're talking about. Um, Can we get uh, personal with that? Can we talk a little yeah, bit about sure. your own, yeah, your own sure. development? Mm-hmm. So... Um, and I think that's especially places like India, which is all about getting rid of the ego, and also places like, <coughs> excuse me, here with the plant medicine, which is, again, in a way, kind of expanding your consciousness. And then you've got to go back to your own culture and try to like, put yourself back in the bottle, in a way, or reconcile the bottle that is there, the, the, the structure that is there. And so for me, a lot of my Englishness was exposed to myself, um, not so much when I was away because I was, you know, in a way kind of stripping the ego and, and doing these different things um, or connecting to self. But then when I came back, you then see the culture in a way that you didn't see it before. You know, I've lived in lots of different countries and you you kind of, when you live there, you see them with a sort of anthropological eye of their beliefs and their values and their importance and the, the effect that has on the people. And then when you come home, you have a, a similar idea. So I'll give you an example. You know, in, in England, they have this whole thing about not offending anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Before I, I have to say this, I'm gonna interrupt. When the first time I flew to England, when I was going to Ireland in college, and the airline stewardess would say anything, they'd start the conversation with "sorry." And yes, like, sorry. Exactly. <laughs> what are you saying sorry for? I, are you just you're saying hi, or you have a question? Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's classic. Or somebody bumps into you, and you say sorry. You know, <laughs> or excuse me, you know, all these sort of things. It's sort of this incredibly self-deprecating, putting yourself down. But th- that kind of shows itself in this weird way of communicating with people where you're actually saying something that you don't mean at all. And so I've also had the experience of 
partners of mine, girlfriends of mine far, from different cultures coming to live in England and they can't understand what's going on because everybody's talking in this weird way that means something totally different from what they're actually saying but because we're all English we, we kind of know that language and we understand it. So for example how nice of you to come means it's time for you to leave, you know, please, <laughs> <laughs> please bugger off. Um, or, you know, oh, we must get together soon means I never want to see you again. You know, <laughs> it's, it's almost the total opposite. And so I remember sitting, I remember sitting, uh, having dinner in Holland with my in-laws and saying, um, wanting to have some more rice on my plate and saying in, a, in an English way, is there any more rice left? To which they looked at the pot and said, yes. Because that's, you know, that's the obvious answer. Yeah. And so, and, yes, there is. And so I was like, well, well, can I have some? And they were like, yeah, sure. You know, but you wouldn't say that in England. It would just be too presumptive yeah. to actually ask for something that you want. Um, yeah. And so what I found then coming back from spending years living in, in India was everybody talking this weird language that I'd kind of half forgotten. And I, there was a part of me that was like, I can't, I don't think I quite know what anybody means all the time. And I'd end up kind of offending people and, and also just thinking, why are they doing that? <laughs> you know, like, what, why are they, why are they talking this ridiculous, in this ridiculous way, where they, nobody means anything that they say. Why do you think they're doing that? I, I think it's a cultural, what we'd call an IFS. It's a kind of, it's a cultural burden. So as long as everybody's swimming in the same sea, it doesn't really matter. But it must be so complicated for, for immigrants, like I've said. But it's, it's this not wanting to put yourself forward. Yeah. Um, so to contrast it with America, you guys have less of that problem, right? Whereas in England, we have this whole thing about A, not wanting to offend anybody, but B, not wanting to put yourself forward, not wanting to big yourself up. But the, the, the weird paradox in it is that by not wanting to offend anybody, you actually end up hurting them more. You know, by, by saying, oh, we must meet up, you know, you're so, so nice, I really care about you, giving that impression, not wanting to offend people, but you have no intention of ever seeing them again, they get the wrong impression and that hurts them more. If you just said, yeah, great, nice to meet you, good luck, it wouldn't matter. So I like this conversation right now because I think it's a it's a good moment to go towards what you said, cultural burdens in IFS and uh -huh. how our root experience and our lineage, our family, our culture, our, our local society, yeah. um, all, all those identities, you know, that we're, we're, we're entrained uh, or mm, I don't want to say it's all external because I know there's internal stuff going on too, mm -hmm. but how parts work, how, how the parts that we develop are in relationship to say those cultural burdens. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And I imagine that there was some parts development for you that you could also lean on. So I kind of want to go a little bit more personal on your, what you learned about your own part that was a cultural burden and then how we can see our own ego development. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause like, is this a part of the ego that you want to celebrate? Right. Like, I mean, I suppose you could. You could just yeah, go yeah, yeah. fully English and just really enjoy it and really laugh at it and let it be a kind of a cosmic Absolutely. joke. But you could also yeah. be like, hey, actually, this is a kind of a condition part that I'm done with yeah. and I want to move from. So yes. work with that. So as I sit here in my top hat with my cup of tea and my umbrella, I'm fully embracing <laughs> my Englishness. <laughs> um, 
So again, I think it's a case of mistaken identity, mis um, mistaking the parts for the burdens they carry or the role that they play in the system, right? So just quickly for me, um, I, I have a background in Chinese medicine like you. I then spent lots of years in India exploring ideas of the ego and yoga and the mind and all that kind of stuff. And then I, when I came across internal family systems, for me, it was just a game changer. It was a way because it's a way that you can access what we're talking about and have a personal relationship with it rather than just trying to run away from your own tail, like I was saying before. But you can really have a personal, um, you really understand it. And beca because you understand it, you have this innate compassion for your own system. And that's where the healing happens. And also you can't, you turn, you, 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 you love, you understand where it comes from and you, yeah, you love your, it's like your own flavor. The parts appear in your own sense of humor and your own references. And so you have a, you develop a really strong um, compassion and celebration for your own system, which we, that's what I mean by celebrating the ego. But there's this sense of not identifying the parts with the burdens they carry. So for example, the cultural burden that I would have of, um, not wanting to offend anyone, that's something that this part has learned. But through IFS, we can help it to get rid of that. So we can help it to keep the bits that it wants to keep, yeah, but then get rid of the parts that it doesn't want to, it doesn't want to anymore. And so that's the same with cultural things, but also with, with trauma, with your deep sense of, you know, fear or unworthiness or whatever it is. Once the part has unburdened that, then the part can take on its natural qualities, which are playfulness and creativity and, and uh, joy and effervescence, but it's your own flavor of that. And that's what I mean by celebrating the ego. It's like, you know, the light of self comes into you in a spotlight and then it hits your personality, your unique personality and turns into this beautiful rainbow spectrum of light. And it's that that we celebrate. It's, it's the unburdened system. So you're not celebrating the burdens or the beliefs or the conditioning that the parts are holding. You're celebrating the unburdened system, which is your own ability to write poetry and create music and be playful and inter have a sense of humor, for example, your own unique sense of humor, interact in your own way. Um, so that's so that's what I really want to celebrate. And if you want to get personal, maybe I can illustrate it with an example of an IFS session that I did just before we came on air. Sure. So I was doing an IFS session with a friend of mine and it was around... So my initial... Um, thing was like a sense of, of, of kind of wanting to be able to communicate well and maybe kind of nervousness about coming onto the podcast um, or just to explore that kind of area. And so we found a part of me that was overwhelmed with the world and overwhelmed with yeah, it's just all too much. So it, it sort of manifested in my own inner inner gaze. So that's the other great thing about IFS is it's almost like a kind of psychedelic experience or a shamanic experience in that you're going into your inner world. And so your inner world manifests through your kind of inner eye in certain kind of symbolic forms. But for me, this part manifested as a child that was wearing those ear protectors, you know, when they take... they 
when you take kids to rock concerts because it's all just too much and he's and and he's there with his hands over his ears and he's shying away from the world because it's all just too much so that's a part of my system and so then we explore well why where is that coming from why is why is it too much what's going on because at the time I was sitting on my balcony having a cup of tea <laughs> having a very peaceful time it wasn't very much going on and so that led us to another part that was pushing this part, poking it and pushing it and wanting it to perform in a certain way and wanting it to engage with the world in a certain way. And it's, it, it was the pressure from this other part that was too much. And that other part was holding cultural beliefs about how one should be in the world, how one should engage with the world, how one should present oneself. Um, you know, and so that was the part that was holding the cultural beliefs. The other part was just about communication. He was a communicating part, whereas this other one was holding these cultural beliefs about how one should be. And so then a bit more curiosity towards that part. Why was that part? What, what was this part worried about if it didn't do that? Then that is protecting a part that feels unworthiness. Yeah, so I don't know if the people can follow. You've got the three parts, the communicating part, that it's all too much, the world is too much, being poked and prodded by this protecting part that has all these cultural beliefs. But what that is protecting is this other, what we call exile, vulnerable, small part of me that has mm. this sense of unworthiness. So this part has this sense of unworthiness, not being good enough, and that's protected by how I should, how one should behave in the culture. But that put in itself put so much pressure on this other part of the of the ego or the system that it kind of it gets overwhelmed and it can't really handle it. And so in the course of this session, it transpired that actually previously in my IFS sessions that I'd done, I'd done lots of work with this unworthy part. And he wasn't actually feeling that unworthy anymore. He was actually quite playful and um, joyful and interactive. But this cultural part didn't, had, didn't realize that. He hadn't picked up on it. He was running an old program. And so all I had to do was introduce this cultural part and be like, hey, look, he's fine. He's not unworthy. Everything's good. He's fine. He's just happy playing there. <laughs> and that part was so relieved that it just kind of collapsed. It was like, oh, thank God. You know, I don't, I don't have to have all these kind of ideas about how one should be anymore. And so that... In, you know, in turn meant that the, the communicating part wasn't overwhelmed, felt a lot better. He could take the earmuffs off and, uh, you know, there was peace in the inner system. I love that. I love, I love the, that when that particular part learned, the cultural part learned that things were actually more okay than the cultural part was thinking in you, how it was like, oh my God. And I, I guess I relate with it, you know, like that's a really a really great anecdote of, of, of not exactly celebrating the cultural part that's tied to its burdens and, and affixed to it and fixated. Like, this is who I am. Exactly. I need to push myself. We need to lift our status. We're not good enough. Or I don't even know there's a part of me I'm, I'm, that I'm hiding. I just know that I feel this way. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you're not celebrating that. That's the thing. What you're celebrating is that actually once that part saw that, the thing that it was trying to protect was not necessary. That it, 
at one time, maybe it was necessary. When I was a kid and I was growing up and I was in an English school, it would have been necessary to behave in that certain way in order to not feel that unworthiness. But now, you know, I'm on a balcony in Peru having a cup of tea. Everything's fine. I'm a grown man. You know, I can, I can run my own life. And so the other part, the part doesn't feel so unworthy. You know, I'd already got rid of that burden. Once the cultural part saw the change in circumstance, it could relax and it could get rid of its own beliefs. It could get rid of its own conditioning. Um, and that actually when, when it did that, you then ask the part, okay, so now you don't have to do that anymore. What do you want to do? And it's at that point that people's parts will express their own unique flavor of personality. And so for me, when I asked this part, what did it want to do? It was showing me um, trigrams from Chinese medicine. It was showing me the arrangement of trigrams and it was showing me Sanskrit and it was showing me Carl Jung's red book. And so it was said, what it was telling me was actually, I want to help you still learn to be in the world, but from a universal perspective, not from a cultural perspective. We're not living in that limitation anymore. So it, it, it wants to learn, you know, it's a part of my ego, a part of my system, a part of me, that once it doesn't have to do this role that it doesn't want to do anymore, never wanted to do in the first place, it has enthusiasm for learning. It has enthusiasm for learning about different ways of being in the world, not from a protective way, but from a what we call a self-led or a more curious, joyful way. Yeah, and I think that's why, because I've done IFS work with you and you're really great at it, and I've done a little bit with Alice, and I think that's why I've found in my circumstance when we worked together, there was this consistent group of energies that just started, I, I began to develop a relationship with an understanding and it allowed a potentiality that the fixated ego or the, the burdened, whatever the burdened self couldn't find on its own without communicating the parts. So I want to do two things here. Um, I want to, I want to just kind of for the listeners, just be like, sorry to go numerical here, but how many parts does any one person have just to kind of get practical? And um, I know there's probably no limit, but I want to hear it from you. There is no limit. It's a great question. And it doesn't have a simple answer. It's not like 42, <laughs> like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Um, no, it changes. Um, and people will, will continue to discover new parts. I mean, Dick Schwartz, the inventor of IFS, or the discoverer of IFS, who's been doing this for 50, 40, 50 years now, says that he still comes across new parts of himself. But in my experience, and from what people like he says, you've got a kind of core team of protectors, the sort of managerial parts of your ego. But then you, you, can, you can discover more of them. And you have lots of exiled parts. But there's something also about how you'll discover an exiled part and you'll heal it. But then you'll, it'll... <sighs> Parts can have different facets like diamonds. You know, you can approach it from one side and it has one, it's in, it's in one what we call constellation of parts, but then it might be playing another role in a different constellation of parts. Um, so it's a very difficult question to answer. I think it's just good to kind of like get it as not like a limited thing. Let me ask you a couple more questions about this. Are parts transient or are they always there? Is it a, like a wave of an emotional feeling um, or does that part exist in some substantial way 
with continuity. No, the parts are always there. Yeah, the parts are always there. And I mean, it's, you know, nobody knows for sure, right? But the parts are always there. For me, there's a fascinating kind of parallel between um, DNA, what they talk about DNA in the sense that people have these um, inherent kind of potentialities that then get stimulated or woken up by their life circumstances. Right. Uh-huh. That's what they So do you tie DNA. parts more to DNA expression or neuroscience or both or none of the above? <laughs> uh, I think you're asking the wrong person that. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I don't know. I think it's a fascinating question. I mean, for me, I tie parts more to uh, samskaras and the vrittis of your chitter and, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe the hun and the po from Chinese medicine and maybe the idea of the shen as self. You know, there's, there's, for me, I spend more time wallowing in those waters than wondering about the DNA. And, um, but I think that obviously the, the, you guys touched on neuroplasticity the other day. And I thought that was fascinating about the, how you can remain flexible. And I think from a parts point of view, that's about helping the parts to get rid of those rigid beliefs and, and have that kind of fluidity and freedom and, and flexibility that, that is inherent within us. But yeah, I mean, there's, I think you parts probably have a bit of everything. One thing that's been in for me for a long time when I was in my twenties and I was studying uh, Thai massage and they talked about the channels in Thai massage that there were 72,000 channels, <laughs> you know, but they focus on, I think it was these 20, you know, like there's 72,000, but we're just going to focus on some of them. Cause you know, there's just so many, I kind of feel like that with parts work a little bit. And I kind of feel like that with energy. And yeah. so I, I imagine it as both kind of a little bit of a noun, like there's objects there, but there's also fluidity and there's constellations that are evolving in, in like little pockets of synapses in the brain or maybe some part of the heart experience of emotions and all these mysterious communications. As you know, when you do acupuncture, the way the body can respond, there's just such an array of responses that we're touching into things. It's like, ah, that's not actually on the map, but I believe you when you say you're experiencing that. You know? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in a way it's endless because also I think that in once you've turned your gaze inward, that inner world is has different rules from the outer world. And so trying to pin it down can be can be very, very difficult. Yeah. And I think I agree. It, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, you go. And so for me, the main No, thing, please, you go. <laughs> yeah, no, after you, I'll go insist, English on you. After insist, you. After no, you. No, after you. <laughs> so the main thing for me with IFS is bringing together the Eastern wisdom traditions, uh, their ideas of the, the self or the separate self or the Atman or the, the, the Purusha or the, maybe the Shen, you can think about it in, in, in Chinese, and the way that the Shen comes into the body. So you've got this idea of the universal Shen and then the personal Shen, which is in the heart, and then that would be self. But then the Shen, as you know, in Chinese medicine, kind of animates the rest of the body and has this relationship with the rest of the body and you can understand it as kind of vitality so it's this way that you're bringing these kind of transcendent or you know buddha nature and you're bringing that into the ego and you're bringing that into the kind of the nooks and the crannies and the creases of your own ego that it wouldn't necessarily get to anyway and ifs is just a self-delivery system yeah and it has a model of the ego but it's not you know it's not exhaustive and I think we can continue to find all sorts of stuff like you said there's all sorts of layers of stuff that comes up and I've I've you know a lot of it is cultural but I've also met parts of myself that just had this 
deep, deep, deep ancestral memory of like a village being attacked. Yeah. You know, that our, our tribe is being attacked. And it wasn't a personal memory of mine. It wasn't a legacy from my family. It was just something so deep inside me that when this happens, we respond in that way. All right. That's beautiful. I mean, it's, it's beautiful to name that is what I mean. And, um, so there's two things I've been carrying. I've been working on this whole season on passages, which kind of like, I had this crescendo of really amazing, what I consider really amazing interviews. And one of the things that stuck with me from Anna Lemke, and I started thinking about on pain and pleasure was homeostasis. You know, when I was been introduced to the ideas of homeostasis in classes and courses, it's, it's kind of an internal system, but I've been getting to think of homeostasis as self environment as well. You know, and I know that genes and environment are in conversation. So I'm beginning to think of parts and the parts that we develop as a very deep kind of homeostasis, you know, Absolutely. like when you're, when you're in boarding school in England or wherever you're at and you're like, I need to actually develop this part because this is part of my homeostasis. And then there's going to be another homeostasis part that's like, I don't really like that. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to rebel this way or that. And so I really have like, it's such a boring word in a way, homeostasis, but it, it the, I've, I've, opened up to a deeper sense of its livingness, that there's a deep homeostatic process there. And so what that means for me or where I've been going with the ego and the ego and the small soul development is how to develop the soul. And, and this was part of after my conversation with your sister is like, what, what is ego development? Like what kind of things develop the ego or help the ego? Right. And so like on the Instagram feed, I see a quote, I'm like, that's actually really good because that helps the ego, the sense of self feel, be, live differently, be more interactive. So when you started talking about ancient memories, when I was in my twenties and the first time I got on a plane and flew to England, cause I was on my way to Ireland and I ended up in a deep, you know, ceremonial space in, um, in the heritage sites, going to all the, all the stone circles in Ireland and doing medicines there, plant medicines. And I was in this, 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 this cairn and, um, I was with a, a friend and we were traveling and doing ceremonies and we were sitting in this, in this cairn in these like little passages. We went to one that was the one in, uh, what was the one we went to in England? Uh, Long Barrow, West, West Kennet, yeah. Long Barrow near Avebury That's right. in Wiltshire. That's yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. So similar. Yeah. Yeah. And this yeah. was, you know, and this was in the nineties and, uh -huh. it, and, um, but the, the things that, that like cracked open and I was like, Oh, okay. Now I'm seeing an ancient Eastern, uh, Siberian shaman in this room. And now I'm seeing Krishna and now I'm seeing this. And so, um, and I just came out of a ceremony last night too. And I was like, wow, I haven't done a ceremony in a long time. And the, the, the things that help us move our ego or move our parts or show us, mm facets, <laughs> not just so the in, I mean, the internal world obviously is so much more expansive when you use plant agents to help slow it down and show you and teach and, and, and unwind and guide. Um, but I'm, I'm thinking about ego development, homeostasis and the things that help the ego, including plant medicines, but including other practices as well in terms of I guess we're all just doing it in our own way with our own group of people, but we're all crafting some sense of self all the time, yeah. right? We're all crafting. It's, it's, it's a, it's a moving verb of life. 
And I love that. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just, I'm just waxing a little bit here on, on the energy. Selfing. We're all selfing. That's a nice word. Yeah. <laughs> so we're just in the process <laughs> of happening. Yeah. Um, so there's a, so many things um, that you touched on there that I just want to talk about. Um, firstly, so you were doing a ceremony last night, huh? So yeah, we did a plant ceremony and it uh, was an ass kicker for sure. It was um, bring your lunch, mm-hmm. be ready to grow up mm-hmm. <laughs> and handle your stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it was powerful. Yeah, it's intense. So in terms of homeostasis, I think that's great. And I think you've hit the nail on the head. And again, I think that's a, a reason to celebrate the ego. And I'll just give you a quick example of, of, of why that is the case. So you might have an alcoholic part of you, a part of you that is determined to drink. And you might be battling against that. And, the, you know, the, a lot of the traditional ways of dealing with it would be to try and exile that part of you that's try, that's that's telling you to drink all the time. But if you approach that part with compassion and and understanding and try to realize why it's doing that, it may see that the alternative to that is some kind of suicidal thoughts. And that's often the case that we find with, with IFS is that it's protecting against something worse, that there's another, there's another part that again, they're going to both be protecting an exiled part that is, has a solution that's even more extreme and so being an alcoholic from this part is in itself a form of homeostasis yeah it's protecting the internal system in the only way that it knows how and 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 once you understand that then you have compassion for it rather than trying to fix it or get rid of it or exile it and and then if you can bring healing into all the parts then it won't need to do that anymore because it doesn't want to do that but that's the only tool it's got and so then this brings us into how you can, how did you put it, um, help the ego or cultivate the ego? Yeah, I want to say first that, you know, what, what you just described reminded me of what Alice said about how she brings listening and simple listening. Yeah. Because um, that's a very powerful example just to talk about alcoholism, which is, a you know, obviously a disease and it really is harms people's lives and harms people around them. But to look at it through the lens of part as a protective part. And then that what Alice said so beautifully in the show about how just listening and, and then that there's like a nat once that genuine contact, and you said this at the beginning of the show, the relationship between the self and the ego parts, that there's a, like a, an autogenericity, I'm not making up a word, like an autogenetic kind of like a restorative function exactly. that starts to emerge when there's genuine presence, exactly. which is oh, that's, so beautiful. That's the relationship, that the relationship heals, the self to part relationship heals. And you know, that self is there because you're feeling compassionate, you're feeling um, caring, you're feeling calm, you're feeling confident, you're feeling playful. You know, there's all these different aspects of self. Um, but exactly, if you can just listen to the part's story and understand it. And also, you know that if there's another part in there that has an agenda or judgment, then that's another part. If you're feeling an agenda or judgment towards this drinking part, that's another part. And so you work with that part and then you get to the drinking part. You know, so it's just a, IFS is is what again what makes it different from the Eastern models is it's a constraint release model. Yeah. So whereas in the East you're trying to leave your ego behind and get to Buddha nature, in IFS the premise is that when the parts step back, self is revealed. It's the underlying reality of all of us. You can't. It's closer than your own breath. You can't get away from it. 
I'm going to interject here again. One of the things that I really liked about working with you is, is methodical is not too technical a word, but it was a methodical approach to getting closer to the uh, exiled part or the, you know, working with the protectors and getting closer. And I think if I was to just project or imagine my own life before a kind of skillful interaction with the parts, I'd say, well, I bounce from part to part and they're not really integrated. So sometimes I'm, you know, not for me true, but in my alcoholic part, then I'm in my like recovery part and then I'm in this part and my life's a little more chaotic and it doesn't, there's no consolidated thing. And I, and I would still go back to modern life. Like that's such a, a kind of, um, like they're like it's just so hard with so many people and so much history and and so much going on to actually uh, uh, give that foundation of healthy developed integrated parts. You know, absolutely. I thought that was beautiful last time when you guys were talking about novelty and the idea of being in a hunter gatherer community and having a sense of mastery over your environment. Yes, nature or you know you know all the people that you know and they're the people that you know and you know maybe you like them and maybe you don't like them but there's not that many surprises there and likewise in your environment and that now we live in this kind of not only is it I mean we search for novelty as well it's this kind of dopamine thing of the new that's you right know, that's what we want and so no yeah. wonder our parts are all so confused uh, but also, <laughs> but we have to celebrate dopamine because dopamine is incredible motivator and has also brought a lot of. Oh, absolutely! You know, I think yeah, it's yeah. great. I think, but again, that's that celebrating that um, lust for survival. Uh-huh. I'm not. I don't just want to sit in a cave and be eaten by rats. I want to live. I want to be part of the world. I want to engage with the world. I want you know. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's great. That's great. It's when it turns into suffering that it's not great, that internal sense of suffering. And that's that's not that. That's the burdens and that's the beliefs and that's the stuff um, that, that we carry. I just want to also reflect that you were saying, oh, you know, well, I'm in this part and then I'm in that part and then I'm in this part and I'm behaving in this way and I'm behaving in that way. And I think everybody has that experience. And then... You know, when you're a father, you're a father. When you're a, you know, when you're at a football match, maybe you behave a little differently. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And when you're when you're the referee, you behave one way. When you're playing, you behave. You know, there's all these different parts inside us, and actually, that's okay. That that's that's fine. That's great. It's not about who am I. I have to be the the recovery part rather than the alcoholic part. It's the idea of the mosaic mind is beautiful and there's nothing wrong with that and it should be celebrated and it can be unburdened and made easier and made smoother and made less suffering but it's wonderful to have all these personalities inside you what i love about the intelligence of ifs work is the pacing of building relationships to and between the parts and you know you said it really beautifully about the healing that comes with self-depart relationship and it just spontaneously arises when there's compassion and and those kind of qualities there when the parts can feel the self that's what heals when the parts can feel the self that self energy that's what heals but our our um, systems are so kind of clogged up with different parts with different agendas and different you know there's a web of stuff going on and so part of the the ifs therapist or practitioner's job is to sort of 
hold space for that knot to be untied, you know, that to be untangled in a kind of delicate operation of allowing all the parts to step back so that self is revealed and then building the, the trust and the relationship between the self and the different parts that then gives you um, access to the deeper, 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 deeper parts of the of the ego of the psyche which is where the pain is which is where the burdens are that all of these other parts are trying to protect so if you just go blundering into it you're not gonna you know you're gonna you're gonna you might get to it but you'll piss off all the protectors uh, again you know coming back to plant medicine you see that a lot that the people's systems rebel um in response to ceremonies when they come back when they come back out they can't handle it um, and that happens also in spiritual communities. You know, there's people do long retreats and they reach these amazing states and then they come out and they can't handle it. You know, their system that they built up of protectors rebels. Um, whereas with IFS, it's all built on trust. It's all built on connection. It's all built, built on compassion. And so you're piece by piece sort of delicately unwinding the system in order to then flood it with, with love and compassion and self-energy and transform it. It's like a grandmother weaving something for her grandkid. Yeah, exactly. Very beautiful. It's beautiful. And it's great. I mean, it's wonderful to, to be a part of and to see people, to feel people doing that. Because you once you get that sense that what Dick calls a critical mass of self has been reached, then it just kind of flows. What I really was moved there was this idea of pacing. You can only pace if you understand the nature of something, right? And so that spiritual or maybe that medicine tradition um, that doesn't understand maybe the cultural burdens people are coming in with. So I'm, I'm really, I'm really thinking about pacing right now in terms of respect for the system. Right, exactly. That's it. Respect for the system, Re respect for the system, respect for the parts. And, and it makes me think of Taoism, you know, it makes me think of the watercourse way and just that flow, you know, you can't hurry. There's that great, is it allowed to quote that, you know, nature doesn't hurry, but it gets everything done. So good. You know, and uh, it's just that sense of, yeah, feeling, feeling the flow. And I think that comes from a respect thing. And I think, again, it, it's a cultural thing of our culture is very kind of driven, you know, we're constantly looking ahead. Everything that we do is almost for tomorrow. Um, and so we're trying to fix something. We're trying to, there has to be a kind of solution to something. That Western medicine, for example, they're constantly trying to chop bits off or poison it. That's basically like their approach is either to, is to find the problem and eradicate it and just go straight in there and fix it. Whereas, as you know, in the East, it's much more like use a homeostasis. It's about rebalancing the ecology of what is going on in order for then healing to happen by itself. That the healing is a natural state of what happens once the ecology is, is, is rebalanced. I really love the internal family systems. I really love the internal healing balancing. And I, I do think that the, the ego structure is about like expression in the world as well. Like we are an organism and we need an environmental and a selfing with the, the mm -hmm. landscape, selfing with other people, selfing with expression of knowledge and purpose. And, and so the ego also needs to be adapted to the outward world. I just want to honor that side of the ego or that side of the selfing that is about 
taking self-knowledge and expressing it into the world for service, good and self. Yeah. Healing and stuff like that. Absolutely. I think there's so many, yeah, that balance between the inner and the outer is such a kind of fertile ground because, you know, you take people out of the right conditions to live and their whole inner system will implode no matter how much IFS they do. Um, you, you are, uh, I was listening to Alan Watts the other day and he's talking about this idea of eyes actually includes your environment. You are your environment as much as you, your own internal world. And I think that I, sometimes IFS, does it ever feel like it's high maintenance work? Does it ever feel like it's like, wow, I'm spending so much time looking at these different parts and conversing with these parts? Yeah, IFS can be high maintenance. And I think in a way that can also be a, a way of bypassing. I think some people get so into it, similar again to, to plant medicine yeah. or spirituality. Right. They get so into it that they just want to spend their whole time in there, you know, and it's not made for that. It's made to help you then be in the outer world in a more self-led way there was just one other thing that i wanted to say though in regard to that is that because our culture is so outward focused i think for lots of westerners at least there needs to be some rebalancing and so i think coming across ifs or plant medicine or some way that in, enables you to go into your inner world you've maybe you maybe lived your whole life without really doing that and so there's quite a lot of catching up to do in the inner world before you can find that that kind of balance um but yeah i totally agree i think yeah, it's all to do with living in the world, right? You want you want to live in the world. You want to relate and, and express and create and enjoy. And that's what it's about. But it's... I think that's right. Um, there's one other uh, kind of not quite critique, but kind of question that came up for me is diving, you know, intellectually deep into this conversation around the ego, the small soul and parts, which is the role of burdens and the role of suffering. And, you know, it's, it's persuasive. It's like, yeah, I actually do like to feel better and I do like to feel flow and I like to feel freedom and more creative and not overly self-conscious. Like sometimes I can be self-conscious for unnecessary reasons or, you know, in some, my awkwardness or goofy or unattuned, you know, I can I have a whole list there, but, um, the, the, the value of burden. And the yeah, value the of, suffering. of suffering. Yeah. So if we're trying to unburden and, un and, and suffering, like, is there something that's missed? And I would go back to the conversation about pleasure and pain, that pain actually resets the ability to feel pleasure. And so the, the burden as in the teaching, like, ah, I'm carrying this thing and I've been holding this thing. And, and there's a, there's a knowledge comes from the encounter with the burden. So what do you think about that in terms of just like, your experience with parts work and, and, and the value yeah. of burdens and suffering? I think it's a great question. When you look at high achievers in our world, a lot of that is driven from suffering. Yeah, they're looking to prove something. When, when the final analysis is, is, is written, maybe they were better. I mean, in the East, they'd look at it much more in... in uh, you know, they believe in reincarnation. So they look at it lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. But if you're just looking at it this lifetime, maybe the suffering that drives people to succeed helps them to have a better life. So in that sense, maybe suffering is useful. Also, in Eastern, in Buddhism and in yoga, they talk about be grateful for your suffering because that's what turned you towards the Dharma. And so the role of suffering... I think it's part of the human. I think it's part of the human condition. 
isn't it? And I think I, I think it drives us to to evolve, whether that's evolving um, toward achievement in order to cover up the suffering, or whether that's evolving towards self and trans, uh, you know, the spaciousness with inside in order that the suffering doesn't have such a um, an impact on your own system. Dick Schwartz talks about, you know, we're here in a school of hard knocks in order to learn certain lessons. And the lessons that you need to learn are the burdens that your parts are carrying. And so it's by going through those processes that you evolve spiritually and that also suffering, you know, evolves physically. When we're under stress, and I, and I, and I intuited that the answer was this, but once I looked it up, it was confirmed that when we're under stress, gene variation increases. So in stressful times, the deep homeostatic wisdom of biology says create more possibilities for success. Things are stressful for us unless we're training. Like if we're trained for it, it's not as stressful, but stress also helps us train. But stress and training actually work at a genetic level at a physical level too. So each of these things are really important. Comfort's good. Peace is good. But this is why the the whole pleasure pain balance is really helpful to know that, you know, when I experience my deep hurt, that that's fosters ego development, that fosters relationship. And maybe that's what, what I'm coming away with this conversation, that part of ego development is self departs conversation. That's not, that's paced and not blowing one out for the other. Yeah. I think that's where I'm at. I mean, there's a whole other road we can go down around, um, you know, the fact that we've now, live in a culture in which we have to recreate these conditions that aren't <laughs> totally. that's there. a different show <laughs> yeah that's a different show you know totally. you can get yeah, women yeah, home no. yeah, getting, yeah you know that's that's a whole that's a whole yeah no show. it's true it's true and i was actually thinking about it. i do want to wrap up here but i was thinking about it the other day i'm like are we gonna get to the point where because there's such a deficit of things in the world we're gonna have to use technology to stimulate certain human needs and pleasures that we just lost yeah i wonder i wonder in the metaverse, I mean, the ultimate, the ultimate thing of this evolutionary psychology is that we're all going to be living in these sort of, in these sort of um, jars, fulfilling all our needs. <laughs> and we've created in the metaverse yeah. that we are in a in a hunter gatherer society, and we're living out this hunter gatherer life in the metaverse in order to meet all of our needs. I was in the metaverse last night. I'll tell you that. I'm like, oh, I understand what this is about. I understand what this is about. But um, that's for a conversation for another time. Rory Heim, it has been so great to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. It's been a pleasure, brother. Yeah, it's been fun. I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for joining us today. All music is performed by the incredible and effervescent Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. Please support this podcast by following us on your favorite streaming platform, sharing it with your community and friends, and by making a modest donation to our Patreon page. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people make peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.